Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by co-site experts, Lucas Johnson and Christopher Klein. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Lucas. Uh, Chris isn't here tonight, but we got Uriah filling in as per usual. Welcome back to the co-host chair, Uriah. And uh, we have a very special guest today. He started his career actually out with the Sixer Sense. And then he, along with a couple other people, started up the Painted Lines. And now he is currently working for ESPN 973. Welcome, Jason Blivens, everybody. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me on. I'm actually across from the Boston Garden right now in Boston. Uh, they are oh, playing snap. Knicks. Yeah. Wow, that's sweet. That's, a, that's the, uh, the location where the last debacle took place with the Sixers just took over. <laughs> Swept the series, baby. That's what I like to hear. Yeah, the Celtics are looking pretty bad this year, so I'm... Very happy about that. Well, not pretty bad, but they're looking much worse <laughs> than they have been over the years. So, Jason, glad that um, that you got your start there, and you're doing very well in your career. Very happy for you. Glad that you just you agreed to come on, talk to us about some Sixers. So, Uriah is just going to jump right into it. Uriah, take it away, bud. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to jump right into the most recent game that the Sixers played. Uh, they defeated the Boston Celtics 106-96. And as I said a few moments ago, it was a series sweep. I think the last time that the Sixers were able to do that was the 2000-2001 season. Big night for Joel Embiid. He came back uh, after missing the the horrible Memphis game. We'll get into that later. But Embiid had a big game. We had some good bench play from Cork Maz. Uh, obviously, Simmons, he's been in the funk lately. Danny Green, he was lighting on fire from three. So let's just jump into that game. What are some takeaways we took away from the Boston game. Yeah, so listen, Boston is a team that, um, gosh, I have so much to say about them. Philosophically, <laughs> they um, they have slowly eroded their upside for the sake of the ego of their general manager, in my opinion. So I think they have made a lot of moves that in a vacuum look fine, are defend uh, defensible, um, but when you look at this team as a whole, what you see is a, a ceiling on that team that gets lower and lower each progressive year. And the reality is, uh, Joel Embiid smacked them in the face last night. There's there's just nothing. They are not built to do anything uh, to him, and uh, that wasn't the case two seasons ago obviously. And um, they have, they're just the, uh, they are the, uh, the the case study for how to limit your upside as a franchise, in my opinion. They do a lot of nice things when they are all bought in. They play really good connected defense. They all tended to be for a few years you know, between 6'3 and 6'9, and they could do a lot of things uh, defensively, but they've gotten smaller throughout the years, and they've banked on some guys that are getting older, and uh, that's a recipe for just getting just getting handled by a team like the Sixers. Yeah, so I'm going to agree. Like you said, Joel beats Macdum. He... He came back and was just like, this is why I should be MVP. 35 points in just 33 minutes, 9 and 19 shooting, 16 of 20 from the free throw line. Um, that's all the Sixers points. But, yeah, no, you bring up an interesting point. And you know what? The Sixers were actually at one point in fear of doing it themselves when uh, Elton and Colangelo during those like that two-year span where a lot of our assets dried up, you know, future draft assets and making those trades. Al Horford, obviously. But, you know, the Sixers got their ship right now. They still have young players. And I think the biggest, the biggest thing that you can... It, like you said, in the vacuum, each one of these moves were defensible. But the where, place where the Celtics missed was their mid-first-round picks. Because they had a lot of first-round picks that they did not trade and they used on and a lot of players that did not end up panning out. And instead of using those trades to move up or, you know, trying to get the right type of, um, you know, 
getting a, a upper tier star, it ended up backfiring in a way that now that you have a, be- a weak bench, probably one of the weakest benches in terms of, you know, outside of who, what, uh, Evan Fournier, who's a rental this year, that bench is probably one of the worst ones in the Eastern playoff race right now, I would say, because you don't have anybody that you can really rely on consistently off that bench so yeah the the problem is the bench because the starting five you know ryan williams no not as good as uh horford but he's he's going to be very good jason tatum i mean kemba walker that kemba walker trade for terry year looks terrible now but back then it made sense especially uh you know with losing kyrie it made sense it worked and uh, but you know, you lost stars for nothing. You lost Gordon Hayward for nothing. You lost Al Horford for nothing. You lost Kyrie for nothing. So that's that's in like I said, maybe it is the ego of Danny Ainge that has hurt them. So yeah, that's definitely a good point that you bring up there. I, I mean, think about um, 22 months ago, 20, 23 months ago, 21 months mm-hmm. ago, uh, draft night. Uh, the Sixers trade with the Boston Celtics. Uh, I think I'm probably wrong, but I think it was something like uh, Grant Williams and Carson Edwards when you when you shake it all out for Matisse Thybul. And um, it was Ty Jerome. Yeah, it was Ty Jerome and Carson Edwards. Ty Ty Jerome and Carson Edwards. And people, yeah. you know, I was in the gym in Camden for Carson Edward Edwards pre-draft workout, like. I'm around a lot of NBA players. Carson Edwards is really small for an NBA player. And he's got tantalizing physical strength. And he's got good range. But, like, the odds that a guy that is that undersized translates into an elite NBA player that really makes you uh, regret a trade to move up to get the guy that you want are really, really small. But, you know, that's a night where where Danny Ainge, uh, his people take a victory lap for extracting Carson Edwards as the value out of being willing to move back to get the guy they already wanted anyway, right? So mm-hmm. um, that's like a victory lap that means nothing right now. Mm-hmm. It means absolutely nothing. So would you rather have Ty Jerome or Matisse Thibault, right? And, yeah. Um, and it's just Kemba Walker. I was never a Kemba Walker guy. You mentioned uh, Brian Jacobs. He and I, he, he another um, Sixer Sense alumni, we would go at it about Kemba Walker, whether he was a good player or whether he was a impressive player on a bad team. And the problem with that is I think there was a real argument to be made three years ago uh, on either end of that side. I happen to be, he was an impressive player on a bad team, uh, but he's six foot tall. And as soon as you lose a half of a step, uh, unless you're an elite outside shooter, it's gone. Like it's, it's really your ability to actually help wins and losses is gone. Um, and he was never an elite outside shooter. What he was was an elite ball handler and could get to his spots. But you lose a half a step, and that just doesn't translate to wins anymore, especially if you have Jason Tatum, who also wants his shots. And if those two guys get all those shots, then what are you really getting value-wise out of Jalen Brown other than defense? So it just becomes this, like, snowball effect of small decisions that look great but in the long run just make you a mediocre team you know you look at Kemba Walker and he's getting long in the tooth and when he's on he's on but when he's covered by uh, uh, let's say uh, another a forward who's just as quick as him has a, a, a longer wingspan like Matisse Thibel he gives him problems I was at the opening game uh, not this season but the prior season when they played the Celtics in the first first game and Thibel in his first game as a rookie was locking him down and I said wow mm-hmm. uh, you know on paper it looks nice and I think he is an impressive player on a bad team 
But you also look at they brought in Tristan Thompson. They traded away Daniel Tice. They brought in Evan Fournier, as you guys said, as a rental. It just makes you wonder what is going on with Boston. And I know Jason is talking about the ego of Danny Ainge, and that probably has something to do with it. But I think maybe the days are numbered in Boston for their coach. And mm-hmm. it, it's – I would wish I could say I'm, I'm sad for them, but I'm not. I, I hate the Celtics. But it's just <laughs> they were in the Eastern Conference Finals, what, two years ago? Last and year. now they're – yeah, yeah they're – They've fallen so far off. I'm just happy that, you know, we are, you know, putting them in their place, you know, in the Eastern Conference. The Sixers are just keep climbing, keep getting better. And that obviously is because of Joel Embiid. Um, Simmons has been very inconsistent since the All-Star break. My theory still stands where I have where he wanted to boost his stats just to get into the All-Star game. I've been very critical of, of Ben. Although there is some speculation, some rumors about him having some family issues. But, you know, we'll get into that later. And uh, just to wrap up this portion right here, I will say that I find it interesting that throughout his whole entire tenure as the Celtics head coach, Brad Stevens has always preferred to have a scorer first point guard, even though he has had tremendous talent on the perimeter he has never had a really good orchestrator, and I think that's what the Celtics are missing from being a true title contender. Well, that and an actual center that can actually like body up and beat even a little bit, because you know Ryan Williams is six foot eight. Um, same thing for Daniel Tice. Um, but no, I mean the Celtics. I think were I think based off of what how Brad Stevens wanted to play are poorly constructed now. And I think, you know, they got rid of a lot of veterans who, you know, let's be honest, could have challenged Brad Stevens. And because Brad Stevens is a young coach and a former college guy. I mean, you had a lot of veterans to begin that tenure, and now you barely have any. I mean, Marcus Smart is your, I believe, longest tenured player on that team. That's a problem. Yeah, I would also say that, in Brad Stevens' defense, uh, and really in any coach's defense, it's like players win games, uh, especially at the NBA level, but but really in any premier sport, there's only so much a, a coach can say, and there's only so many mm-hmm. times that coach can say it before it starts to get uh, to become white noise. Uh, Brett Brown certainly fell into this. I think, you know, there's just after seven years, everyone knew the Brett Brown isms and the, and the players did as well. So his ability to motivate players with the same um, isms uh, had reduced impact. And Andy Reid, you know, he went to Kansas City and won a Super Bowl. But Andy Reid, I think, fell fell into the same thing. You're in a one place for 14 years, and the things you say and the and the 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 bullets in the chamber that you've got, and the levers that you've got to pull as a coach, just have reduced impact. And I think Brad Stevens is probably a good coach who has players who have heard what he's got to say. So when he speaks, it has it has. Uh, uh, just diminishing returns. That's why I keep putting it back to the the organizational philosophy of trying to hit singles and doubles with your with your roster versus really taking the home run shots. And we can we can go back to the the Markel Fultz and Jason Tatum trade and say, God, he really fleeced Colangelo, but. You know, Markel Fultz was the home run shot in that draft. Jason Tate, uh, Jason Tatum was always going to be the nice player who was not going to be LeBron James. Was not going to be you name. Is not going to be Kevin Durant. He was not going to be James Harden level. He was always going to be in that next tier below. Probably a safer bet not to be a bust, right? But always going to be in sort of that Tobias Harris level. 
a player. So Boston has played it safe in getting guys that would not bust for them. Um, they have not taken the home run swing. They've not been willing to fail spectacularly like Sam Hinkie was willing to fail spectacularly with Joel Embiid. It looked really bad for two years. And then Godzilla arrived and the league has a real problem on its hands. Those are the kind of philosophical differences that I think make the two franchises really interesting. Even though Boston has objectively had more success than Philadelphia, I don't think they're any closer. And in, in fact, I think they're much further away from a championship than Philadelphia is. I would love to keep talking about the decline of the Boston Celtics, but we're <laughs> going to move on and we're going to look at, uh, we talked about the good. Now we got to talk about the bad, the ugly, uh, the Sixers lost to the Memphis Grizzlies. Come on guys. The Memphis Grizzlies, 116 to 100. The irony is that, their arguably best player didn't even hit double digits. We're talking, obviously, about Ja Morant. But in that game, the Sixers' uh, leading scorer was Tobias Harris and Beats at that game. Only two other players scored in double figures. Uh, Shake Milton came off the bench. He had 14. B-Ball Paul, Chris would just love to hear that name resonate in this podcast. He had uh, 10 points. Just a across-the-board ugly game embarrassing if you guys ask me as a Sixers fan I was I was embarrassed to see that debacle Jason what'd you take away from that horrible Memphis game uh second game of a back-to-back disjointed uh Embiid doesn't play so much of what they do is built around his skill set I do think they are a team that just schematically lives with a very particular style and there are just some nights where it it i i've used the um the analogy of you know an italian race car motor you know when everything is finely tuned it is just really good but it doesn't take that much to throw it off and i just think that's it's the kind of thing that happens to an NBA team. You know, they're not a 70-win team. And I've said this before. They're not a 70-win team. They're not a six. You know, they're not a 65-win team. This is like a 56-win team. Uh, the question really comes about in a seven-game series: Do they have the different chess pieces to win a seven-game series against anyone? And to me, that's what what matters. I throw these these kind of games right in the trash. So my opinion of this game was simple. Jonas Valanciunas is one of the more physical centers in the NBA. Mike Scott is not a center. He's an undersized power forward, and they played him at center. And what do you expect to happen? Jan uh, Valanciunas had 16 points on 8 of 11 shooting from the field. Most of them were offensive rebounds or putbacks. Well, he had five offensive rebounds that game. Yeah. And he just, that set the tone for physicality. The Sixers, as you were saying, were coming off of a back-to-back. And the rest of the, they, Grizzlies played physical defense as they've been known to do for the last almost, what, 15 years now? 15, 12 years? So, yeah, not surprising. They're a young, hungry team that are still in the hunt for a playing spot, you know. Not surprising. And, uh, you know, this they had their way with the Sixers. And the Sixers just... You could tell very early on the team gave up. I think you can kind of tell when certain teams give up on certain nights. And that was definitely one of those nights. And just, you know, Memphis was being physical with them. And by the, end, by the halfway point of the third quarter, we all knew the game was over. Do you find it happened. interesting that they are still willing to throw Mike Scott out as a small ball five and they haven't because I almost look at games like that and I say look this is the this is the Daryl Morey calling the agents of buyout centers saying you see we need your guy will get playing time and as these uh as these centers have 
have gone off the market. Dwayne Dedman just got signed. I really wanted Dedman. I, right, I thought so, he would have been perfect. Yeah, it's like oh, it, you almost use games like that as a as a case in point to an agent saying your guy will play here. Look at this huge hole we have with um, you know Dwight who gets in foul trouble and or thrown out consistently. Joel Embiid, who's not going to play back-to-backs for a while. Like, there's a real role here. And I found it interesting that they've, they've missed on Gorgie and Deadman and a lot of these buyout centers and DeMarcus Cousins, quite frankly, mm-hmm. um, that they haven't been able to sign a guy. But I almost feel like throwing Mike Scott out there as small ball center is almost... It's, it's one of two things. Daryl Morey just truly believes in five-out offense as being the wave of the future, and therefore your defense should be constructed to stop that. That was my question to Daryl on um, trade deadline night. And But B-ball Paul, you know, Paul Reed is not ready for that. Doc Rivers is not playing a rookie in the playoffs, so that's not your guy. Mm-hmm. It almost... Yep feels like a conflict of philosophies between what Doc is willing to do and what Daryl, I think, wants to do with the roster. I, th- I find it a really interesting subplot that while I would throw that particular game in the garbage and not think about it again, I do think it highlights like potentially a philosophical difference. I find it interesting that you mentioned the you know small ball five with Mike Scott there was a game I think it was the second Knicks game and both games went down to the wire and I think the Sixers went into overtime they were like it was under two minutes to go tight game Julius Randle was handling this mightily and they decided to put Mike Scott in its center which shocked the hell out of me um, because Randle was just a force not just outside but inside and that just made me wonder, what what is really the logic behind that? Now, I think that was before the trade deadline. And keep in mind, we know that Scott's contract was a very tradable contract. We don't know for sure if, you know, if he was involved in any potential trades. I I'm, I'm sh- wouldn't be surprised if he was. But I think the philosophy, like you said, Jason, you have to wonder where are they going with this? Mike Scott being put in as a five, small ball. He's not a good defender in in any shape or form, whether he's guarding forwards or centers. And that game, yeah, I guess you could say it was a throwaway. I saw it as an opportunity for certain players to step up in the absence of Joel Embiid. Yes, they're probably just coming back from a, a really long road trip. You know, fatigue sets in. They are human, but Simmons had a really terrible game. I think he went two for six. And I just don't, I don't understand how some players can't get up at least for a home game, <laughs> you know, show some pride out there. But I don't know. What are you going to say, Lucas? I, I was going to say that, um, yeah, I think it is a conflict of philosophy there. But, you know, Daryl's always had this, you know, if you play how to maximize your ma- your best player, maximizing Ben would mean playing five out. That makes sense. And to talk about B-Ball Paul, or uh, Ali, as he liked to be called. I don't know if you saw that little quip about what Ali said. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, about uh, B-Ball Paul, but, um, or Ali. Anyway, Doc Rivers has said, and I'm pretty, he kind of alluded to it, but Doc Rivers has said that he does not trust Paul Reed at the five position right now. He's not ready for the NBA five position. Uh, I tend to disagree, but, you know, Doc, like you said, does not love his rookies. So we should not be surprised. But yeah, no, buyout guys, there aren't that many great names left now because Deadman's off the market. I mean, you really are starting to hit the bottom of the barrel here unless you want to go for like Tyler Zeller type of guy, which I strongly advise against. Or maybe you go for a stretch five like Skyle of Bissier or Thom Maker. Or maybe you go for a young guy like Justin Patton. You know, try that over again. You know, a little bit more experience. He looked okay in Houston. Or maybe you go for uh, Mufondo Cabangeli, who was, you know, he's under, he's a little small, but he's a strong, uh, you know, big man, strong undersized center that played his first two seasons with the Clippers. But those are the type of guys you're looking at now, and it's not 
it's not a good look. And so that's that's the issue here for sure. So recently, Jason, the Sixers, despite the bad game against the Grizzlies, you know, you know one or two bad spots, they've been pretty su- successful overall with Joel out of their lineup, despite the rough start to be, begin the year. And uh, the, I believe they uh, to go seven and three. And Dwayne Wade, you know, former NBA great, uh, had this to say about the play. To go seven and three in those ten games without their MVP really showed a lot about the team and their growth, according to Dwayne Wade. So, how should we feel about that recent run of success for the Sixers, uh, Jason? I think it's, I think it's good but irrelevant, honestly. So while it's good from a seeding standpoint, uh, if you don't have Joel Embiid on the floor in the playoffs you're going you're not winning anything of significance so um i I just he's such a unique in the history of the nba he's we're going to look back in 20 years and and think of him as such a unique player that um they have to craft a an offense around him they're, they have a luxury defensively that allows them to do things uh, on that side of the floor because you have him. Um, and it forces the opponent in a, in a playoff series to build everything around uh, minimizing the damage that he will do to you first. And then secondly trying to deal with a Ben Simmons and then third trying to close the gaps that those two create for and Seth Curry create for Tobias Harris who can make you pay for the choices that you make so while it's nice that they they played well to me it was more just like regular professional basketball that they are just able to win in the dog days of an NBA regular season versus like any revelation around their upside. I just think they are as good as their best player as most teams are. And their best player, no question in my mind, is Joel Embiid. And it's just, it is as simple as maximizing what he brings to the table in a seven-game series. It's that simple. Yeah, I can't argue that uh, Embiid is clearly their best player. I I do think that you lend some credence to uh, Dwayne Wade in terms of his analysis. He watches all the games just like we do, and he's been a player. And and the Sixers have been an enigma the past uh, few seasons, and that's probably large case due to Brett Brown and his – like you guys were talking about, his voice getting stale, you know, the past year and a half, two years. I would say that the team, what they should take away from this is that they should feel confident because the track record for the Sixers going back since Embiid has started playing and being that focal point of the offense, the team, they have pretty much, I'm going to call it like I see it, they sucked. They've sucked without Embiid. And to go 7-10 and in most of those games on the road, the team should feel confident build that confidence, know that they can handle certain situations, uh, whether it's offense or defense. In terms of the fans, I, I think the fans should be just gleeful right now and thankful for Tobias Harris. Um, he's been consistent. He's been a 50, 40, 90 player for the majority of the season. And the other thing I want to say is that I think the fans, we should be thankful for Doc Rivers compared to what Brett Brown was was unable to convey through his system and his connection with the players. So seven and three is nothing to sneeze at. I don't think I can dis- be as dismissive. I do agree that Embiid is is critical, especially in a seven game series. But hey, it's a confidence builder. I think you guys make both uh, both make great points. I will say that I think it was good for the role players, and it definitely showed improved chemistry from the beginning of the year. So that's good players being more comfortable with each other. Um, there was definitely some guys that stepped out outside of Harris, even though Ben did not really step up. 
You had guys like Danny Green hitting some really big shots, Shake Milton having a big game here and there. So overall, it was I think it was a good way to get some of those key role players, you know, getting going before the playoffs. And I think in terms of, you know, team importance, yeah, I think it's important. Chemistry's there, good leadership with Doc Rivers for sure. I think overall, I think it's a good sign, though. I think it would definitely be a good sign. And I'm happy to see that the Sixers are doing better without Joel. But in the in the end, you're right, Jason. It, when it comes down to the playoffs, they need Joel. They need everybody on. I think, like you said, in the car reference, if this team isn't running on all cylinders, it, it falls apart pretty quickly. So this team needs to be healthy and prepared for the playoffs, but it's good to see it during the regular season. But, you know, the other part of this that I want to tackle real quick before we move on is what, Jason, what do you think helped the team play better in, in Joel's absence despite, you know, them struggling in the past when he sits? I, I do think uh, Doc Rivers gets a lot of credit for just being a steadying, calming influence. Uh, he is extremely comfortable in his skin, in what he knows um he's just got decades of experience he knows the right levers to push he has a fantastic set of assistant coaches uh they just they are truly professionals that know how to keep keep guys um seeing and exploiting the things consistently that happen in a game uh, so I just think he's been a, a really steadying influence. Um, he's been able to see with each one of these players what their special sauce is. He's maximized that. And I think he's uh, allowed people to be exactly the type of player that they can be for the most part, not putting them in bad spots for the most part. So I think he gets a ton of credit for them just being – Businesslike and professional consistently, which is, uh, you know, you could say that for all of Brett Brown's enthusiasm, a lot of it was fluff and it, there wasn't a lot of meat behind it. With Doc, it's like very clear that even if he gives you a fluff answer to a question, there's a ton of depth that goes behind it. I think it comes out on uh, on uh, in the team's play. Yeah, I definitely have to echo those same sentiments. I think Jason nailed it. Doc Rivers, I tell you, when he when he played, I remember watching him in his days in Atlanta when he played with Dominique. Solid point guard, very dependable. Wasn't flashy like Isaiah Thomas or any of the other you know NBA guards, flashy guards back then. But he was a solid point guard. Same thing when he was with the New York Knicks and they went on that run where they took on the Bulls for those years in the 90s. But if I were to just go a little bit further in terms of what exactly he does, and I mentioned this probably a few weeks ago, guys, the rotations that that he puts out there in terms of the bench players getting solid time together, not like Brett Brown would always make sure he had Embiid or Simmons on the floor. No, Doc will sit both of his stars and let sink or swim. He'll let the bench come in and either they'll be putting up a dud or they'll find their way and they'll either maintain a lead or get us back into it. So I think the rotations have led to better bench play, but I definitely agree with the whole idea of a more professional presentation and just being real. I mean, there were times, I think in the beginning of the season where we were all trying to figure out what kind of coach is is Doc going to be. And there was, I think it was like the fourth quarter of a game and the team just gave up maybe a 10-point lead. And Doc came off the bench in a timeout and was lighting his players up. He was not holding back his language or anything. Where Brett Brown, that wasn't his style. And maybe that was the style that the Sixers needed to maximize, you know, the talent that they had. But but yeah, I, I would agree, Jason, 100%. Doc yeah. is definitely a, a big, big factor in terms of them picking up and, and being better without Embiid. I wonder how much of it is just the disruption, the short uh, training camp, the short preseason, wanting to keep, because the few practices that they have, they're going five on five. 
So you have a, a unit you're trying to build chemistry with in your starting unit, but you're mm-hmm. also trying to build chemistry with your, um, with your second unit. And by staggering rotations too much, you're putting guys on the floor with other players that they just haven't practiced with enough. And I think that was a savvy move, especially early in the season to, to do exactly like you said, just look, these are guys you've played with in the practice gym, but Hmm. these are people that you, you sort of know a foot to the left, foot to the right, where your outlets are going to be, where they're going to be, where they like the ball, what their spots are. And uh, you let them play with each other. The question really becomes, is that his core philosophy or is that a circumstantial coaching move for the first, you know, first three quarters of a season? How much of that translates into playoffs or next season? Do we still see that philosophy play next season? Because I'm not sure the Clippers really played that way under Doc. I'm not sure it was quite that way because he inserted Lou Williams into uh, into that lineup as the sixth man quite a bit. So it, that'll be interesting to see how much of that was like early season trying to build cohesion versus a core philosophy that he has. Yeah, I think you guys make both great points. I will say that he definitely loved going all bench for a couple minutes each game when he was coaching the Celtics. I definitely remember that. I, I, you know, keeping players accountable, getting into their face. I think we all love that versus, you know, the more melancholy Brett Brown. And I thought about this guy while you guys were talking. And I know this isn't on topic, but I, you know, do we honestly think that if Doc Rivers was the head coach when they traded for Jimmy Butler, that Jimmy Butler would have left? Or do you think he could have respected Doc to a level to where he would want to stay? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> it is. A good I question. think he, I, I think he would have stayed personally because Doc Rivers is the type of coach that he could get behind. And respect. I would, I would, lean, that yeah, I would lean that Dr. way. Yeah. Doc Rivers is the guy that, you know, tells them your job, you do your job, but that's the type of guy Jimmy is. Yeah, but I also think Jimmy tends to wear out his welcome pretty easy. But Tibbs is a Doc guy. By the way, uh, by the way, the Celtics just won their game against the Knicks uh, last second, uh, not last second, but in the final moments. And I'm hearing the fans celebrating in the streets, which is funny. Um, so. <laughs> Jimmy Butler's personality and Doc Rivers' personality would be a fascinating thing to watch. Jimmy clearly didn't respect Brett Brown. Um, But, yeah, that would be interesting. All right, so we're going to our next topic, guys, and it revolves around our all-star point guard and Ben Simmons. And it's all about the Defensive Player of the Year award at this point, this part of the podcast. I'm going to put down my axe to grind, the offensive axe. Forget all the duds and, you know, the passiveness and whatever issues that Ben is going through right now. You know, if it's personal, we we hope that it all shakes out and works out best for him. But if you just look at the numbers and you look at his impact on the defensive side of the ball, he's been a juggernaut. We cannot deny that. But however... In the past few weeks, since the All-Star break, he's kind of fallen out of favor with some of the people who are um, in the rankings for NBA.com or ESPN. And for a while, it was like neck and neck. It was Simmons and Gobert. And as of right now, Ben is in third place with the rankings for Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, Jason, we're coming your way, man. What, why do you think Ben's losing ground at this point? Well, I think we're at the point of the season where counting stats um, start to start to be viewed by by voters. Um, ben Simmons' defensive impact is is much harder to quantify in a box score. So, what what doesn't come in a box score is in the fourth quarter when the other team has a hot hand. Ben Simmons steps out and takes away that hot hand. Like, you know, that takes a few filters on advanced stats. 
mba.com um, advanced, right? You have to apply a few filters to see those those stats. Um, so it's easier to give a defensive player of the year to high steals guys or high blocks guys. People at this time of year tune out a little bit. They pay a little less attention. So highlights matter. Highlight blocks matter. And then there's the there's all the other stuff that you've mentioned about about Ben on the other side, which I do think he becomes a polarizing figure, not just in Philadelphia, but uh, nationally and amongst former players as well for just his um, for all uh, as well uh, for as good as he is at taking away the other players hot hand uh, the other team's hot hand he's also a player that other teams can take away um, if they play a certain style of defense and that's wall off the paint at around six or eight feet and he really doesn't have the repertoire to make them pay there is a disciplined type of defense that takes ben simmons out of it and i think that just creeps into the whole ben simmons conversation on both sides so you know i do think he is a unique defensive player and one of the best defensive players in the league but it just takes you have to scratch below the surface to um, to see it. So I'm going to say that I don't, regardless of his offensive struggles, that shouldn't matter in defensive player of the year. I mean, gosh, Ben Wallace got defensive player of the year, what, four times and literally yeah, never. Blocks averaged. and rebounds. It's all about blocks and rebounds. I mean, I, I get it, and I get it, Ben. You know, you don't usually get perimeter players getting defensive player of the year. I mean, Kawhi Leonard, I think, was the last one that you could really say was one, but let's let's be real. You're right. It is beyond the box score because counting stats are something nice, and Rudy Gobert has the best counting stats. And But you have to also think about it like this. Both Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid and Zion Williamson have all, have all taken Gobert to town this season. It's not been pretty. He has lost individual matchups. Now, I will say Gobert is probably one of the best team defenders in the NBA because what he does for that team is unbelievable, how he changes their whole entire defensive scheme. I'd be, but at the same time, Joel Embiid does something on a slightly less you know, impressive scale, and you know he's not even in the conversation right now, which is a shame because he should be. Um, but Ben Simmons, as far as, correct me if I'm wrong, but no player has gone off on Ben Simmons this year. Did Booker go off on him? Booker usually has his way with Ben. Devin Booker? What, Devin Booker? Okay, so Devin Booker. Who but he's probably the only one. <laughs> yeah, Devin Booker, who has been compared to Kobe Bryant by some analysts. I don't think that's quite accurate, but I mean, he's one of the best offensive players in the whole entire league. And... I mean, outside of Devin Booker, we can't really say anybody. Whereas Gobert has definitely lost several matchups against guys that he should be shutting down, undersized Zion Williamson, Joel Embiid, who plays his position, and Ben Simmons, who can't make a jump shot to save his life. He should have won those matchups. Ben Simmons, I mean, he's done it to the best. And one of the most versatile defenders, um... Honestly, he's a better defender than Draymond Green right now, and Draymond Green thinks he's the best defender in the whole entire history of the NBA, which is so inaccurate. Um, but he is a better one through five defender than Draymond is right now. And I think the fact that he can shut down key players where Gobert has struggled to do so is something that the, that voters should not ignore, and they should ignore his bad offensive numbers because it's not about offense, it's about defense. So that's that's where it's at for me. Yeah, I think if I'm going to... If I'm going to... Um, right, let's go back to Doc Rivers. I think Doc Rivers has used Ben as the queen of the chessboard defensively. And he's done it really smartly where he doesn't just 
say, Ben, you are guarding, I don't know, Jason Tatum tonight. And Ben is, tortures the opposing team's best scorer all night. That's not really how Doc has deployed him. What he's, what he's done what has, has been a lot of, let's get our base defense out there. Um, and then when we see that other team, what they're really doing to hurt us, then we adjust, we put Ben out, and we shut off the valve, and we stop the bleeding. He goes and stops the bleeding. And I think there's a little bit of, like, uh, that works both ways. Like, it makes it really obvious how good he is when he goes and is that that closer against the other team's uh, hot hand. But also, it allows them to preserve him so that he doesn't get worn down at the same rate as the other team's green light guy might get worn down. So I think it can accentuate some of his best aspects, and, and that really comes down to really good coaching. Um, but again, you look at Miles Turner, there's no reason Miles Turner should be in the conversation. But then you look at his counting stats, and his, he's got three and a half blocks a game. Yeah, Blocks per game is... Here's one of my things with Joel Embiid is like, don't count blocks per game because people don't even attempt shots around the rim when when Joel Embiid is in there. There's a lot of guys that they screech the brakes at 12 feet and attempt a really low efficiency pull up 16 footer or 12 footer or 18 footer when they see that Joel Embiid is in position. For, for Miles Turner to get three and a half blocks a game, that means guards have the confidence to attack the rim and are willing to take the chance against Miles Turner. So blocks per game is, to me, a really potentially misleading stat that can overemphasize how good a defender you are. A lot of it means guys are confident enough to attack you. Uh, Joel Embiid, that's one of the reasons I don't think he's won Defensive Player of the Year yet is like people just want nothing to do with attacking the rim when he's when he's down there. I definitely think that's a good point with Embiid. I can see that. That's a tremendous difference when he's in the paint. When it comes to Ben, he is definitely one of the best lockdown defenders in the league. If I was voting, he would definitely get defensive player of the year but i'm not on the panel so that's neither here nor there but let's get to another ranking this is interesting this came out last week uh espn came up with the top 10 players under the age of 25 uh simmons right now is number seven now these rankings are based upon future potential not necessarily stats and you know how many all-star appearances they've had so i'll just give you guys uh the top 10 right now according to espn and then the debate here is is Ben Simmons, should he be higher on the list or should he be lower? Or is he where he's supposed to be? So number one is Luka Doncic. I think that's a no-brainer. Zion Williamson, number two. LaMelo Ball, surprisingly, number three. Donovan Mitchell's four. Jason Tatum, five. De'Aaron Fox, six. Ben Simmons, seven. Mentioned it earlier. Devin Booker, eight. Bam Adebayo, nine. Shai Gildress Alexander. So, Jason, where do you think Ben fits on this list? Oh, he's so tough because his, <laughs> his spider chart, if you think about, like, he, I don't know if you are NFL guys, but, like, his spider chart is crazy. The things he's good at, he's great at. And the things he's bad at, he's terrible at. It just makes it such a weird projection because i i'm not a believer in the jump shot i am not a believer in the touch around the rim which takes away so many different options and ways that he can hurt another team um it's just it's he's just a very difficult projection you know, LaMelo Ball 
is such a gambler, but does LaMelo Ball, like he does have the vision, he is is 6'7", he does have the wingspan, if he ever becomes an efficient player, like he could be really, really good. Um, Ben is just, man, every skill in a silo is either boom or bust with him, and it just makes it really, really difficult. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not dodging. I just, I, for me, there are some guys that look great, and we talked about it before, um, but I just don't ever see leading a team to a championship. Um, but I, I just see him as a guy that is almost the opposite. He, he might just always be an underrated player that leads teams to wins. So when I look at this list, uh, you know what? I'm just going to throw out some stats here. There are only three guys on this list. Uh, you know, what? I'll, I'll say, yeah, I'll say three guys that are close to average, uh, two guys really that are close to averaging triple-doubles on this list. And that's Luka Doncic, Ben Simmons. Doncic has the outside touch. Simmons is the better defender. Give and take there. Lamella Ball is probably the next player up. And then maybe Bam Adebayo, Shane Gilgis, Alexander can get close to those type of numbers. But let me just do this. I'm going to rank these guys. I'm going to reorder this based on future potential. So, And I'm going to use the criteria that... I mean, I, I don't want to use the criteria of players that can lead you to a championship because I, I honestly believe Ben Simmons is the third best player on a team for a championship team. That's that's where I view Ben. And right now he's still the second best player. I mean, though Tobias Harris is making a case for him to be the second best player this year. Um, I will say, so this is how I'm going to order it. So I'm going to go Luka Doncic, number one, Zion Williamson, number two, Number three, I actually think it should be Devin Booker. This guy scored 70 points in an NBA game. This guy is a killer, clutch player, has been an underrated playmaker, not a terrible defender. He can do everything on the court, and he has that Mamba mentality. So Devin Booker is my number three. Number four, I like Tatum. Number five, I like... Uh, Donovan Mitchell, number six, I'll put Ben there. Number seven, I'll put LaMelo, because I don't trust the defense, and I don't know if he can be efficient. Number eight, I'll put uh, De'Aaron Fox. Nine is Bam. Ten is Shea Gilgis-Alexander. So yes, Ben should be up one spot. But the real travesty in this list is Devin Booker should not be number eight. He should be in the top three, in my opinion. Um, that's just I would, how I do it. I would say I would only switch two players. That would be Devin Booker and Ben Simmons. I think right now, based on potential, what we've seen, I think they have it right. Uh, I think Simmons is in the top ten. However, if you look at all the players from one through one through seven, and that's replacing Booker for Simmons, what I, my category, how I would critique them, is based on the Mamba mentality. Players that you give the ball in the trenches of the game, fourth quarter, down by one, down by three, whatever, they say, "Give me the ball and get out the way." There's no way on God's green earth that you could ever do that with Ben. I think Ben, there's some type of mental block between the execution of his offensive potential and his fear. He has a fear of missing or not looking good or not looking like the number one pick. I think that's just really, it's really caused him to stagnate and in, in, in particularly in the offensive side. Um, Bam, I think, is more of a complimentary player. Uh, Shy Gildress, I think he's just lucky to be on the list. LaMelo, uh, I think it's kind of up in the air. It's still early. But I do like that he does bring a lot of uh, unique skill sets. And, and like Jason said, the vision is definitely there for him. All right. So we're just going to finish this up real quick here at the end. Recently, according to John Clark of NBCS, 
Daryl Morey says the Sixers formula to win an NBA title is the same as when Doc Rivers won it with the Celtics. We feel our championship formula is to be the number one defense in the league. We expect to be the number one at the end. So, Jason, my question to you is, based off this quote, if this is the mentality moving forward for this team, is it enough to win a championship? Do you think this is the right formula to go under? I don't agree with the wording that he used. And that's not to say that this team doesn't have the right construction to win a championship. But I think that in the playoffs, everybody gets pretty good playing defense. And when you get into the top four, right, the final four, they're all good defensive teams. Uh, I think what, back to you, what you guys were just talking about in that, in that, you know, top 10 discussion, I think there are just players that are able to score regardless of any defense. You, you know, you're, you're helpless. There, there is no shutting them down. And uh, you need those players. So I don't agree. So if you go back to the Doc Rivers Celtics, I think that was that was a special team and they were a very good defensive team and you know they have one of my two favorite non 76ers of all time uh Rajon Rondo on that team there's so much special stuff around that team um but i just if you look at the last 20 years or really the last 30 years um of the nba it is it's final four of the nba you start taking away teams options and it is the players that can just say okay you're not going to let us do this then we're going to do that oh you're going to take that away too well we have this third thing that you can't take everything away and we're just going to do that to you and um and that's what Kawhi Leonard did a couple of years ago. You know, it just didn't matter. I was in Toronto for that series. It there was no defense for that. There was no defense for what he did. Um, LeBron James, they're just you can't construct the defense when he's at his best to stop him. Right? There is there there's just you you what you have to believe and you have to hope is that Joel Embiid is that level of player. When Joel Embiid's face-up game is is on point and he's not turning the ball over by dribbling, there's no defense for him. There's just no there's nothing anyone can do about it. That you hope that you have that guy. So I disagree with Maury. I think what he's trying to say is we think we're in that top tier to be a Final Four team defensively, and we think we have our guy. And you just have to hope you have that guy. You have one of those super, super rare players that there is no defense for. And and I think Embiid is one of those guys. All right, so I'm going to come at the uh, the listeners right now with some wishful thinking. And saying that, you look at the players that the Sixers have. You have Matisse Thybul, who is doing all types of crazy stuff on defense, stuff that a second-year player probably shouldn't be doing, especially with the limited minutes that he gets off the bench. I mean, you have him, you have Ben, you have Joel Embiid as the anchor in the middle, just making, like you said earlier, Jason, making guards think twice about even penetrating. So collectively as a unit, they, they look pretty darn good. But the reality is, I think Jason nailed it, is when the playoffs come, everybody tightens up on the defensive end. And when you have your stars like LeBron or you have AD, Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, nobody's stopping those guys because they have the eye of the tiger. You mentioned the Toronto series two years ago. He was unstoppable. There's nothing that the Sixers could do because he just turned into the Terminator. I'm talking about Kawhi Leonard. So, yeah, maybe he didn't quite have the right words for what he's trying to convey. Um, but I, I think it's going to 
they're going to need more than steals and, and blocks and, and deflections in order to take down the, the top tier teams. Well, let me just say this. While the Celtics were a top defensive team in that league that year, anchored by Kendrick Perkins and KG, KG, I believe, won Defensive Player of the Year that year. Um, the reason why they won was not because of their defense, it's because Paul Pierce, KG, and and uh, Ray Allen were able to willing to sacrifice the, what they needed to sacrifice on offense to make it work, and Rajon Rondo was a master of making it work. That's that's right. the reason why they won. Let's be yeah. clear. Paul Pierce is one of the more clutch players when it comes to playoff performances as well. And uh, to your point, Jason, I agree that Joel Embiid can. I think Joel Embiid's proving this season that he can be that go-to guy. At the end of games, he's looking very hitting step back threes to win games or put them into overtime. You don't see that from seven footers, and it's going to make him one of the most unique big men in NBA history when all said and done is assuming health holds up. So, yeah, I think it's possible. But yet again, do you really want to rely on a seven footer to be doing that for a whole entire playoff run? I don't know. We'll find out. But defense is up there. Don't get me wrong. You got arguably two of the top 10 defensive wings in Ben Simmons and Matisse Thibel already. And Joel Embiid is one of the best defense all around centers, but especially defensively is one of the best defensive centers in the NBA too. So, I mean, you have a shot there. The whites still no scrub on defense in, in a limited role. So take Corkmaz out of the playoff rotation and there's really no weak link on defense except for Seth Curry which you can live with based off of his shooting. So, yeah, it's possible, but you need to make sure that your offense, you can close a game with a guy, and if Joel can be that guy, great. But if not, then it's all for naught. Yeah, and I think if you look at the Nets, and, and I think it's it's probably going to be a Nets-Sixers conference final. If you look at the Nets, I think the way they're building is get to the last two minutes and we have three different guys that can beat you three different ways. Each one of them is a three-level scorer. So, good luck. And um, and the Sixers are built to, as a cohesive unit, we have floor spacers that can create lanes for our slashers. Uh, we have a, a a post presence who can put your team in foul trouble and live at the line and really score at a high volume super efficiently on a consistent night-to-night basis. That's like a really good formula offensively. But Matisse Thibel shutting James Harden down in the last two minutes of a game, and if he is, is... Ben Simmons shutting Kyrie Irving down in the last two minutes of the game? And if so, is Joel Embiid t- shutting off Kevin Durant also? Like, it's just the, it's, I just feel like it, you're going to see a long series w- that comes down to the final two minutes, most of that series. And being number one in regular season defense means very little in that context. So here we are, guys. We're at the end of the podcast, and we just want to give a big thanks to our guest tonight. We have um, Jason Blevins. We just want to thank you for being our guest. Jason, can you tell our followers where they can find you on social media? Uh, sure. Jay Blevins NBA on Twitter, and um, I uh, appreciate you guys having me on. Glad to have you back, man. I'm very glad. I remember when we were both just contributors at this site and you brian and the rest of those guys have gone very far in your careers very happy for you guys and i hope that you continue to you know maybe one day i'll see you on uh you know primetime espn who knows but (laughs) you know Um, i don't think you're doing good stuff yeah appreciate it thank you yeah definitely great stuff and and hopefully we can have you back on in the future jason so for those that tune in weekly to the sixer sense we acknowledge your support and we hope that you keep tuning in if you have not done so already please take a moment leave a comment give us a rating on apple itunes google play or wherever else you're listening this has been uriah young and lucas johnson for the sixer sense podcast we look forward to bringing you more sixers content next time take care 
Take care, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.